Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Dr. Gene Heyman from uh, Boston University. He is the author of Addiction, A Disorder of Choice. It's a really fascinating book that I've been reading. I've got the, kind of the heart of it, uh, the gist of it down, and I'm going to do a little ad for our website and our book, and then we're going to start talking to Dr. Heyman. And, okay, our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any po- any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest, uh, Gene Heyman, is with us right now. Gene, how are you doing this evening? Great, great. Happy to be on. And I probably yeah. should say something. I'm um, at, actually at Boston College, which is mm-hmm. down the street from Boston University. And I've also had a long, I've been in Boston for a long time, and I was at McLean Hospital for some 10 years or so, and before that at Harvard University, actually, where I still teach as well. Okay. Did I say Boston University instead of college? I Boston. I said Boston. Yeah, you said Boston University. I say Boston College. That's how I put it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've so, never been up to that neck of the woods. Okay. Uh, but but uh, the, uh, the hockey teams would be very upset with you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I, I'm not a follower of uh, of college hockey. <laughs> Of actually spectator sports, but that's okay. a, that's that's not my addiction. I've had other okay. addictions, but okay. that's not one of them. Um, the book, your book, is really fascinating, and I saw I found many things that fit in well with uh, our point of view that we do at Hams here. But I, you talk about the idea of local choice and global choice, and where does the idea of local choice come from? What kind of research does that come out of? Well, um, it's an interesting story uh, because it's one of, one of these cases in which uh, the original research had uh, absolutely nothing to do with its current applications. And as um, you point out, and as it's in the book, uh, this distinction between local and global choice has become important in studying uh, addiction and other uh, behaviors that uh, often go by the name of uh, being impulsive. And um, initially, there was no such distinction between local and global choice, at least in the scientific literature. Um, But um, my own research in graduate school and for many years thereafter was actually in the field of uh, animal uh, psychology. Um, Pigeons and rats and monkeys uh, were my subjects. And I was interested in uh, in choice, and uh, there was a general principle that uh, characterized how these creatures uh, made their choices in experiments, and uh, it was widely assumed that it would fit in with general economic theory, which assumes that uh, people allocate, even uh, pigeons and rats, allocate their behavior in ways that's optimal. I mean, why do something voluntary if it's not optimal? But it turns out that when we looked at it carefully, it was far it was often far from optimal as measured by you know things like reinforcement and it was only optimal in this very minimal way um in terms of the best choice at the moment that you made the choice 
and we can and we were forced to make a distinction between what was the best choice at the moment you make the choice versus what would be the best choice over a series of choices uh, that extended uh, over time and this turned out um I, I imagine you know it strikes a chord with you and with i hope you know with the listeners and certainly with lots of people who i speak with because we can uh once you once you think about it and maybe it's 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 obvious from other perspectives what might be the best choice at the moment may not be the best choice in the long term and and the example that i use and i think i put in the book or something like it is that a drink might be at the the, at the very moment uh at the the next minute might be better if you have a drink or have a cigarette if you're a smoker that minute or moment will be best if it includes the drink or the cigarette or whatever. Um, but if you look at a series of such moments, let's say 20 cigarettes in a day or 20, you know, eight or nine drinks in a night, uh, it turns out that um, days composed of eight or nine drinks or weeks composed of days that each have eight or nine drinks are not as good as weeks that are composed of much fewer drinks or maybe no drinks whatsoever. So, um, we can make a distinction between what's best over a larger unit of behavior, a week, a month, a year, versus what's best at when you make the choice. And if we take the position that you always do what's best, then it's quite understandable that people will have one drink and then another drink. And each drink is better than not having a drink, but three drinks is not as good as, let's say, one drink or zero drinks. Is that, um, does that make sense? Um, yeah, it does make sense. Um, and I want to ask you about an example that you gave in the book, which was the restaurant example, the Chinese oh, restaurant and the Italian yeah. restaurant. I thought that was a good illustration. Okay. So it doesn't have to be a drug. Um, uh, the, um, I, and that's one of the points of, uh, of my work is that the rules that apply to all choices – um, also apply to drugs, and it's just that there's a strange interaction with drugs and choice that often lead people down a kind of primrose path to disaster. But the restaurant uh, example, uh, one I've used in classes that I've taught, is you can imagine um, a situation where you know we, we, anything that we do, it, it actually you, you develop, it, it becomes less interesting, less satisfying and uh let uh after a while and it, you know which is akin really to tolerance as well in uh, drug use and so i had people imagine a situation in where they go out to two different kinds of restaurants every night you know they're stuck in a town they don't have a, a kitchen and so they have to go out every night and they like um uh in, in each of the restaurants they they enjoy the food but they like chinese food a bit more than the other kind of food, let's say Italian food, and they every night they go to the restaurant that they like the best. Um, and but it turns out that the because they get tired of uh, Chinese food at a rather rapid rate, and they don't get quite as tired of Italian food as a rapid rate. They keep going to the Italian food even because it's better than uh, the Chinese food because it's better than the Italian one, but. When they um, when they do that, they always are decreasing the value of the Chinese food so much that they would be better off if they let the as it were Chinese food get better. 
and uh, only went to it when it was really good, uh, they would be have end up having a much better eating out experience. So another way of saying this is if you frame your choices, and there's other, I can think of other examples as I'm talking, if you frame your choices as um, what's the best eating out experience, you know, thinking of it in terms of, let's say, a week of eating out or two weeks of eating out, you should only go to the Chinese restaurant once in a while when it's really, really good and you haven't satiated on it, and you should sort of save that for special occasions and then uh, spend more time at the Italian food. And you can actually, in the book, there's a kind of actually a mathematical um, uh, example that shows that indeed, even mathematically, this is the case, not just intuitively. Um, and so there are lots of things like that that we that you in a sense should save for special occasions. And an example, another example might be, let's say, something like special, like caviar or some anything special like that, or alcohol can be special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that you should, if you really want to get the most out of it, you should take. It turns out you should always take a bit less than you would really um, want to do if kind of left to your own, and it'll it'll turn out that your overall experience. You know, as me- measured over um, a series of days or a series of weeks, whatever, but larger than once at a time, um, you can just show through mathematics of, um, that you would be better off doing that. And so it doesn't. It's nothing peculiar about drugs. It's just that drugs happen to be substances uh, that that lead people astray. It, um, I mean, every, anything could lead you somewhat astray, but drugs can lead you far astray because the rates at which they, which you satiate on with tolerance uh, on them, and the way that they interact with other substances is such that you can, by doing what's best, you can easily paint yourself into a corner or drive yourself into an equilibrium, but a very poor, poor equilibrium. So I don't know if that helps, but. There are lots of things which if you do less of than you really want, you'll turn out to have a better experience overall. That's mm-hmm. that's the general gist of the argument. And it's not just an intuitive argument, but it can be shown uh, quantitatively or mathematically as well. Mm-hmm. Well, one example from my own personal experience, uh-huh. I, I used to be a very heavy cigarette smoker. Uh-huh. Um, I smoked unfiltered hand-rolled cigarettes and, you know, <laughs> Right. So, you know, heavy duty and uh, all day long smoked. And the only thing I was doing with that was really uh, stopping the withdrawal. I wasn't enjoying it at all, but I was right. just, you know, stopping the withdrawal. And then I decided I was going to quit, but I decided I would allow myself to be an occasional cigar smoker, uh-huh. but not uh, no more cigarettes and no more of this daily habitual addicted smoking behavior. So I found out that with cigars, my optimal consumption was one per week. Oh, that's interesting. And it's interesting that you put it that way. I think what people end up, I think there are certain kinds of uh, commodities, substances that we consume or activities that we engage in, that we have to kind of ration ourselves to really get uh, the most enjoyment out of them and that they're very easy to overdo. And I think cigarettes is, is one quite like that. And the, the, these kind of tolerance uh, processes take over and so that you, you maybe your first cigarette of the day is enjoyable um, after you haven't smoked for uh, when it, while you were sleeping. Um, and But after that, it gets less enjoyable. And I think drugs are one of the, 
common fact, common attributes of drugs as opposed to other substances is they have this property of one, uh, decreasing in value as a function of consumption rather rapidly, uh, so-called tolerance, and two, and this is perhaps even more important, is that they have this capacity to undermine uh, the value of substances or activities that would non-drugs that they would compete with non-drug activities such as you know um, a stable marriage a job and so on drugs differ from other substances and commodities in that using them also has these kind of uh, effect, has these effects that influence the other things that you do whereas uh, most commodities and activities don't have that property Mm-hmm. I found if I smoked two cigars in a week, I got a significant amount of tolerance, and uh-huh. the, enjoy- the enjoyment yeah. dropped greatly. Right. So to eliminate uh, all the tolerance and you know get yeah. back to maximum maximum enjoyment, I had to uh, limit it to once a week, and then I only smoke outside, so I don't smoke in the winter time. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's exactly that example is a great example. It's exactly the. Um, the, the kind of phenomena I'm talking about, and it just I think drugs are are more subject to that. The things that we call drugs are more subject to that than other substances. Like you can probably have the, if you're like me, you can have the same kind of cereal every morning, and it seems just about you know it's not that great to begin with, but it doesn't get especially terrible. Uh, at least you know then sometimes I go off it for a couple months, but it, there isn't these big fluctuations so that I feel I'm undermining my serial experience uh, by having it every day, at least for uh, months at a time. Mm-hmm. Now, I was thinking about something uh, I studied in one of my textbooks, um, and it's kind of a cognitive science, artificial intelligence example, but it was about this robot that's trying to get its new battery, and it's carrying a bomb behind it that's going to explode in 60 seconds. and <laughs> It it tries to calculate every possible contingency, and while it's mm-hmm. calculating every contingency, of course the bomb goes off. Yeah, well that's um, it, it's it's an interesting if I if I understand what you're saying and its relevance to this conversation. Uh, these the um, these um, actual feedback functions, the actually you know how much it decreases. They're very hard to figure out. What it's very hard to figure out. What is the actual optimal rate of consumption of something that we do? You know, whether it should be one cigar a week or two cigars. That's really hard to tell. And I think um, what we do in uh, in these situations is we take advantage of um, to, uh, social conventions and. There's a kind of a sense, there's a social convention that typically, um, you know, you don't have a drink before noon, now maybe even before 5 o'clock, uh, maybe one or two beers or glasses of wine at, uh, it would be fine, but three or four at dinner would not. And I think what people do um, generally is when it comes to uh, activities and, and uh, commodities, products that are, have these potential dangers of overindulgence, um, we take uh, society offers us some guidelines, and we start with that, and maybe we adjust it as we see fit. But we have uh, some rules to go by, such as what a sober person does, uh, what a prudent person does, and we don't have to sort of figure it all out from scratch. 
like your robot, that the robot, you know, if the robot had somebody to tell him, well, this is what you do in this situation, you don't have to do any calculations, this is the rule, uh, then the robot would still be with us today. Um, and I think that's true for, you know, that where society often steps in and um, tells us, and, and steps in and, and makes suggestions or rules about how to consume things, you know, or like sex, you know, where sex can take place and where it can't. Uh, all of those uh, help us um, manage these things in uh, somewhat reasonable ways, and then we can make adjustments as we see fit, um, but we have a, a strong base to start from. Mm -hmm. I agree absolutely that these uh, <clears throat> social conventions are very important in uh, – Regulating people's behavior and keeping it, you know, within <clears throat> keeping society functioning well is what they actually right. do. Um, and yeah, and ourselves too. It helps us in, as and, individuals and in, as individuals in, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, one point I was going to get to is I think that the local choice mm -hmm. is actually a survival mechanism because when the saber-toothed tiger is coming at right. you, you have to you have to decide very quickly. You can't think about all the options. So you want to exactly. jump to the, the first choice that looks the best at that right. point. But that's, you know, so it is a survival mechanism to have these local choices. But right. then it can get derailed, and that's what happens. Yes. What is, um, um, it, it's an interesting, your example is great. Um, the, this local choice um, analysis actually emerged in animal psychology. It has... Um, been shown to hold uh, quite generally in experiments with humans. I've actually done some of the. I've done both worked with humans and with um, uh, other other species. And in the uh, choice situations that we arrange, we see always local choice dominating. And in order to get uh, this kind of global choice, where people, where the individual figures out what is good in the long run. They need all kinds of help doing that. Um, it's not uh, intuitive. It's not obvious. And uh, and so it, it is very uh, complicated. And uh, I think you're absolutely right that um, this local choice mechanism um, emerged because it was, in most environments, it works. In most environments, it really doesn't matter too much what you do. But there are certain commodities which have become much more available as um Civilization, as uh, as the years have gone by and technology has increased, there are many more temptations now that are very uh, rewarding in the short run, but in the long term are not. I mean, alcohol for you know alcohol has been around in low doses for millennia, but it wasn't really until the 11th and 12th century that people had distilled alcohol. And it, it similarly, it wasn't until like the 17th century until people began smoking opium. Um, so the, these kinds of commodities are actually quite modern and um, came about much after the kinds of psychological mechanisms that guide our behavior evolved. And we, that's why I think society has stepped in um, and provided some guidelines for how to deal to some extent, with these kinds of more dangerous products. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever looked at any of Stanton Peel's writing, but he's talked a lot about uh, Mediterranean drinking styles versus Northern European styles. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, the, I'm um, aware of that. He has talked about that. And uh, actually, I was just teaching a class today. Uh, George Valiant talked about that. Um, and it was certainly quite relevant uh, in the you know 50s, 60s, and 70s. Those cultural distinctions in um, and that different cultures had different attitudes towards consumption and different attitudes towards intoxication, and those seem to again uh, make a big difference in how people uh, behave. We were just talking today in one of the classes I teach about difference, cultural differences among Asian countries where uh, alcoholism is, is not nearly the problem it is elsewhere, partly through uh, genetic differences in metabolism. But um, in some Asian cultures, there is an emphasis on drinking, and in others there is not. And you see on college campuses in the United States, um, you see major differences in college students' drinking habits as a function of, even though they're uh, American, they grew up in the United States in terms of the cultural traditions of their parents. And so it carries, those things can be very important and carry over. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I was thinking about, I was mentioning this to you right before we started uh-huh. the show, um, one of the tools that we use to help people change is the cost-benefit analysis uh-huh. of writing out the pros and cons of your current mm-hmm. behavior and the pros and cons of the change you want to make. Because a lot of people realize that, you know, that they don't like the behavior they're engaging in, but because they recognize there's problems, there's ambivalence, but they re- they also yeah. like it because they like the immediate effect. So of course. this is something that we have tried to – well, we didn't invent this. This has been around forever, mm-hmm. um, the cost-benefit analysis, decisional balance sheet. But it seems to help guide people to make the global choice rather than the right. local choice. Right. You have to do that. and. Uh, you either have to do that or you have to take uh, adopt someone else's uh, cost-benefit analysis, and that's, in a sense, what society provides for us. Yes, and there's actually interesting data. Um, um, uh, there's actually a lot of data on this. There's, I don't know if you're There are people who have done a lot of work. Um, actually, I've just written a paper on uh, recovery, quitting drugs, and one of the topics that I touch on is uh, the people who stop using drugs outside of uh, the auspices of a clinic, which turns out to be most people. And actually, I, I would like to have a chance to talk about that. I think your your listeners would be very interested in the data on quitting. Um, it's really quite uh, eye-opening and probably uh, unlike what uh, most people are uh, been what we hear in the media. Uh, but um, one of the um, themes of this research on people who quit uh, outside of clinics is is that exactly that they spontaneously or maybe through organizations like yours um, sit down and do a cost benefit analysis. Now I think there's something that precedes that. That is, it doesn't spring out of um, you know the thin air. But in any case, they do that, and it seems to be um, to help people. Uh, because they, you know, they say, "Well, my goodness, you know, this isn't really working out for me," and it makes it much more concrete. You know, one of the nice things about having a prefrontal cortex and being able to verbalize things and make plans is that you can sort of create a concrete example. It's not just what's going on in your idea, but you can write it down on a piece of paper, and that makes it more real 
or how that you can talk, talk about it with other people, and that gives it a lot more salience and and uh, an incentive value. And so, doing those kinds of activities really, I think, really does help people. Um, I mean, that uh, make the kinds of changes to improve their situation. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be happy to have you give the data on spontaneous uh, remission, as they call it. I've given yeah. it many times myself. Oh, so okay. So maybe something everybody knows about, but um, well, we might have lots of new listeners to this episode okay. that never heard me before. <laughs> okay. Um, I, well, it's into it's interesting. Um, there's a number of things. Um, first of all, we hear about addiction as a chronic relapsing disease or chronic relapsing disorder, whatever the word you wish to use, but uh, chronic relapsing uh, is used in the formula. And the idea is um, uh, Im- implicit and sometimes explicit is that once an addict, always an addict. And also in that formulation um, that comes with it is that in order to quit, one needs to be in treatment. Um, and this is something uh, that uh, I certainly believed. Um, and then, again, through teaching, uh, I began looking at the data. I wanted to tell my students, you know, about this phenomena addiction. I was actually more initially. I was very interested in the pharmacological aspects, biological aspects of drug use. But I first felt I should be able to tell. Um, the class, what is this phenomena that we're looking at that we want to come to understand in a um, pharmacological or neurological manner? But first, what is the behavioral? What are the behavioral features? And when I began doing research, looking at the scientific research, I was just struck by how different it was than what I had thought when I went into the uh, field. And the basic finding, which now has been replicated in every major uh, epidemiological study that's been done in the United States, every scientific study of the epidemiology of psychiatric disorders, including addiction, is that substance dependence, the official word for addiction, uh, has the highest uh, remission rates of any psychiatric disorder, and they vary um, when from 76 to about 82%. That is, when these survey, when these epidemiological studies are done and they talk to people who meet the criteria for substance dependence, or it turns out that most of them used to meet the criteria for substance dependence, but no longer do so. And given that the typical age of these participants in the study are about 41 or 42, and by that age, 76% to 82% are no longer using. So that's the overall, and this has been repeated uh, now uh, four times, um, and so it's a very, and it's always within that range of 76 to 82 percent. So most addicts are ex-addicts, it turns out. But another interesting thing, and this may be, and this is this is the bad news, is that the remission rates for alcohol and cigarettes are much, much lower than they are, and this is not intuitive, for illegal drugs. <clears throat> the, um, I, I also have been, I had a chance to look at the expected duration, or what we might call the half-life, of substance dependence. And for cocaine, 
in the most recent survey, and it's about 40,000 sub, well, 42,000 subjects altogether, uh, which some percentage were met the criteria for substance dependence. But the half-life, that is the half, the expected duration or half the duration for cocaine dependence was four years, but for alcohol it was 16 years. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so alcohol um, uh, dependence is much more perverse as measured by its duration uh, than it is uh, than is like cocaine or in this case marijuana and the data apparently are similar for opiates. So this was a, this I thought was a surprising result and the papers coming out at the end of this month. Um, and for cigarettes it was even much much longer. It was like uh, must have been I think close to twenty or more years. So so alcohol in cigarettes. Although people eventually do quit, it apparently is much more difficult to quit, or the rates of quitting, I guess that's a better way to put it, are much lower, even though eventually most people quit. And most people, at least for for the illicit drugs, quit uh, without assistance. And the correlates of quitting are the kinds of things that you talk about that that are implicit in the uh, cost-benefit analysis. There are things like economic pressures, social pressures from family, um, legal pressures, those are the correlates of quitting drugs, the kind of everyday matters of life. But they just, as you use drugs uh, more and more, those costs pile up, and they actually become much more immediate, which helps people, since we are biased towards local decision, eventually the costs become very immediate. And so maybe even the local decision is to quit at some point. Yeah, with uh, the illegal drugs compared to the legal drugs, yeah. it's it's difficult to tell how much is pharmacological and how much is sociological. Right, exactly. And my um, my um, well, I you know my hunch for for other I can I can explain it. It's more than a hunch, I guess, is that it's largely drug availability. Uh, that drug availability plays an immense role in this. And it's so much easier to get a drink or get a cigarette than it is to, you know, score uh, heroin or cocaine. And the risks of getting alcohol, you know, the upfront risks of buying a drink are zero, whereas there are risks in getting illegal drugs. And the reason why I think that this is more of a factor than the pharmacological issues is that if you look at things the other way around, that is the likelihood of becoming dependent given that you've experienced a drug, well, the likelihood for that is much higher for opiates, for example, than it is for alcohol or cigarettes. Yet the the half-life, I'm pretty sure, although I don't have data, I don't have a lot of data on this, The how long people stay dependent on opiates is typically uh, going to be shorter than it is for alcohol. And, for this, and it's going to be more like cocaine and marijuana than it is for alcohol. But the likelihood of of transitioning from experimentation to dependence is much higher for opiates than it is for alcohol and cigarettes. So the the predictors of getting uh, addicted or becoming dependent or becoming a heavy user are different than the predictors for quitting, which is an Mm -hmm. interesting uh, phenomenon. Yeah, that is interesting. You know, uh, we view our our approach uh-huh. as an aid to natural recovery. We don't. We think that you know this is the normal 
normal tendency, and right. we want to help to speed it up, make it easier, and maybe make those people on the borderline give them the help that, you know, without the help, they might not have made it into the natural recovery. We're, we're hoping that we can kind of push them over the edge to help them make it to natural recovery. Well, you're absolutely right, that, um, it, and I think it's a really interesting phenomenon, and it needs a lot more emphasis, because I think it has sort of deep philosophical implications that the tendency is for people who are dependent to stop being dependent. I mean, it's just the overwhelming tendency. Uh, as I said, most people who with a history of dependence no longer are so if they're 42 years of age or older. Um, and so, and so what, and the, the correlates of quitting are everyday affairs it's not it's not magic the people don't need you know to go to do something special it's just the kind everyday pressures of life are the predictors of quitting and so you're in a position to accelerate that process by by increasing people's awareness of uh, the costs and benefits of what it is that they're doing um, and I think I think awareness and consciousness can play a big role here, and we can alter that through um, you know thinking about things, writing them down, talking to other people. Those are all ways that um, our lives become more palpable uh, to ourselves. So I think that yeah, I, I agree that that's that's what treatment or help can do is make um, the costs and benefits more salient to people because eventually they do quit and. Uh, the, and the, especially young people end up wasting a lot of time that they end up regretting by you know not quitting until they're thirty or thirty five or forty two. Mm -hmm. And a couple of factors that we've seen, well, a lot of people have seen these mm -hmm. that uh, tend to stand in people's way. One is trauma, and another uh -huh. is uh, mental health issues co-occurring. Yeah. So we very strongly encourage people to go outside our program if they've uh -huh. had trauma, if they have mental health issues, and get those addressed because that will help them a lot to address their substance use issues. Well, that's really interesting because when uh, to when you when you look at what are the correlates of quitting and not quitting, the individual differences, um, the one that is most um, uh, obvious is what people call comorbidity. That is the um, presence of other medical problems, and they're both, you know, both psychiatric and non-psychiatric problems. Uh, and that is the biggest correlate of um, uh, that. Is, that's the best predictor, actually, of whether people uh, are, end up in a clinic or don't end up in a clinic. Is that. And it's also, uh, as far as we can tell, the best predictor of whether they keep using or don't keep using um, uh, drugs. This is not a well-researched area. And one of the reasons is, I think it's not well-researched is that there's a general belief, even among researchers, scientists who study these problems, that everybody who is an addict stays addicted. And so there isn't this understanding that there's really this very potentially fruitful natural experiment going on all around us of comparing people who quit on their own with those who do not. Um, but when you do the few studies that have looked at that, um, what they find is that these kinds of things that you're mentioning, the additional psychiatric, and I also would like to add medical, non-psychiatric medical disorders are associated with the persistence of drug use. And um, and there's, you know, it's easy to imagine, you know, on one hand, that people are self-medicating 
themselves. Mm-hmm. That's one possibility. But the other possibility that is that needs more attention is that um, is that these other problems people have, whether psychiatric or medical, non-psychiatric medical, uh, interfere with the ability to engage in activities that are rewarding and enjoyable, but don't involve drugs. Um, uh, you know, drugs are a g- great shortcut to uh, solving uh, uh, immediate problems. Uh, they can make you feel good right away. And But there are lots of other things that make us feel good. It's just that they take a, often take a good deal more effort. And having psychiatric or medical problems makes it more difficult to uh, engage in these non-drug but satisfying activities that could provide a substitute or compete with drugs as an alternative. So I think there are at least two reasons why uh, the comorbidity issues are, are so important, uh, either it's the self-medication process and also interfering with activities that people can engage in that take the place of drugs. I know my colleagues uh, Pat Denning and Andrew Tatarski have both worked a lot in harm reduction psychotherapy, mm-hmm. and they have found that when they address these underlying issues of trauma or depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. that their clients have done much better at getting their drug use under control or stopping it. So there's a lot of case history data they have. It's not, of course, statistical data, mm-hmm. but it but there seems to be a lot to this that when you can address this issue, the other issue, it, it really helps the other issue as well. Right, right. And I think it's not, you know, again, it's not just because people don't need to self-medicate, but then they also get involved with other, their lives become healthier all around. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's actually some treatment programs that are very explicitly aimed at doing that. I don't know if you've ever had someone you might want to talk to if you haven't already Steve Higgins at the University of Vermont um but they have he has a program a voucher program uh and what he calls community reinforcement program in which they explicitly try to uh, th- their drug treatment program is not really a medical based so much on a, a medical model but it tries to get people engaged in activities that um, can compete with the drug that the people would, you know, that take on a life of their own. And then when they they started with cocaine, looking at cocaine addiction, and they, people would come in, uh, people who met the criteria for cocaine addiction, and they'd come in uh, twice a week and they'd be tested. And if they tested clean, they would get a voucher that they could then exchange for some uh, you know, activity that uh, you know could be something that is enjoyable, like taking a you know cooking class or getting sports equipment, and uh, this uh, turned out to be a very successful uh, treatment program, and it's really based on um, you know the costs and benefits of, of helping people establish activities, non-drug activities that are beneficial both in the short term and the long term. Now, you mentioned community reinforcement. Is this uh, anything similar to Robert Meyer's craft approach? I'm afraid I don't know. Uh, I know the name, but I don't know exactly what they do. Uh, But the Steve Higgins community reinforcement is uh, trying to help people through counseling, get more engaged in guidance in in activities with other people, with other you know, uh, uh, other non-drug activities, uh, taking up new hobbies and so on, doing volunteer work, 
um, trying to get them just engaged in life and also specifically to stop taking the drugs and by rewarding not taking the drugs through getting these vouchers that then allow them to engage in these other activities. So it has uh, two components to it, and I don't know exactly what the, the, the program you're referring to does, but it, it, this, this voucher is sometimes called a contingency program, but it's trying to mm-hmm. kind of, uh, again, uh, increase the, uh, the uh, positive aspects of non-drug activities and in a way uh, increase the cost, immediate cost of drug, of drug use by them not earning a voucher if they do test positive. Well, I will definitely check this out. This is also a huge part of our approach. Uh, one of our 17 elements is about getting involved in activities that mm-hmm. don't involve alcohol. And, you know, if you don't get right. involved in something, if you just sit there and say, I'm not going to drink, you're going to drink. You right. need to go out and do something, yeah. and especially something that you enjoy that's rewarding. Yeah, yeah. Steve, his name is Steve Higgins. It's at University of Vermont, and I always like to talk up his activities because it's such it's common sense and it sort of demystifies uh, addiction. You know, it puts it into a very you know uh, concrete uh, framework that's understandable, and it works as uh, as well, if not better, than other uh, programs around. So it's it's really, it's really quite and he tried it first with cocaine because cocaine was considered at the time he started this program the most untractable of all the addictions the one that we were least likely to be able to uh help people quit but he started with the most challenging one and was very successful with it uh, initially. But it's in Vermont, you know, maybe something that Vermonters do that other people don't. Who knows? <laughs> Well, it makes sense to me. It makes it makes a lot of sense to me. So I will definitely want to get yeah. him on the show. Okay. Now, there's some data you had in the book that I found very interesting. That was about marriage oh, and yeah. substance abuse, also other DSM diagnosis like schizophrenia, depression, etc. You want to talk yeah. about that a little bit? Uh, sure, sure. It's a little bit hard for me to remember now, but I do. Um, uh, it uh, it was striking. Um, one of the things I looked at, um, uh, I looked a lot at the different correlates of substance dependence as, as, to the extent that we know about them. And one of the ones that struck me as a, a, a surprising um, was that when you look at marriage, uh, the other the, the, the marriage rates for other psychiatric disorders are probably a bit lower than they are for individuals without these disorders, you know, holding constant age, but not that much lower. In contrast, for addiction, they were just strikingly lower. And so um, people who were in substance, you know, had met the criteria for substance dependence, uh, had very low marriage rates relative to the regular population, but also relative to other psychiatric disorders. And I, at the time, I just put that in the book uh, because I thought it was an interesting finding and one that uh, I had not seen discussed elsewhere. Uh, but I thought about it, and um, uh, I, I'm, it's something I, I've uh, not really verbalized, or except to, uh, perhaps to my wife. Um, but I, I think it, it is indicative of perhaps the nature of addiction, um, um, and that it is a, you know, that it is an activity that you're involved with, which only, only.
really uh, meets your own needs. That is, it, it doesn't meet the needs of other people. Um, and there are many other things that we do that meet our needs and simultaneously meet the needs of other people. And so that people who spend a lot of time with drugs, either in part because they're doing that, but it also may reflect something about themselves that um, is making their own lives um, uh, difficult, is that they're not that involved with other people and they're not able to, you know, to share as much with other people. So uh, it may be, uh, there may be a lot more, you know, there, you know that's just a, a, a hypothesis, but there may be something really quite um, indicative of addiction is the fact that it is unique uh, among the psychiatric disorders listed in the DSM in that it has this very discrepant um, marriage rates relative not just to the non psychiatric population, but relative to the psychiatric population. And I'd be curious what your thoughts are about that, um, uh, whether you see if that's something that you've noticed and whether what you would think, what's your interpretation? Um, I thought your uh, interpretation was reasonable. It's, yeah. I was just so struck by the data when I yeah. saw it. It's yeah. like I, I never saw this before in any other research. Right, so I was right. Very... right. I, I haven't seen it talked about either, and it's a striking fact. The other thing that is quite distinct about addiction in terms of relative to other psychiatric disorders is that um, the rates vary uh, dramatically as a function of historical period, uh, more so than any of the others. That is, uh, addiction rates, uh, as we all know, have increased, but they've really, uh, over years, but they've increased much more than uh, for any other psychiatric disorder. We just don't see the differences in rates for depression or schizophrenia that you see for substance dependence. And addiction is a real outlier. So it also reflects uh, social conditions um, that people are, are living under more so than the other one. So there's a, a number of really uh, unique things about substance dependence, uh, the marriage uh, statistic, uh, the comorbidity, uh, and this historical, it's historically um, um, conditioned in ways that other psychiatric disorders are not. And so people's, but another way of saying is that people's attitude, it's not just probably drug availability, that may be obviously a big part of it, but uh, also maybe people's attitudes uh, as well or, the, or social conditions uh, play a big role in addiction. And that makes it different than other uh, mental disorders. Well, I think it's also... This is my opinion, at least. Yeah. Different historical periods uh, have different criteria for diagnosis okay. of yeah. addiction. Now, um, you know, in the pre-industrial society, well, say in the Old West, if you got too drunk, they'd throw you over the horse, and the horse would take you home. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you didn't have to worry about people drinking and driving and all that. So, you know, overconsumption of alcohol is much more problematic in the industrialized society than yeah. it was in the pre-industrial society. Right. So there's there's both uh, whether you get in tr you know the degree to which you get in trouble uh, interferes with your life, and that's really uh, a, a key. It's actually the essential component of uh, the DSM definition is that what they mean by substance dependence is you take the drug to such an extent that it interferes with other parts of your life, and as you're pointing out. 
um, that really matters what the other parts of your life are like or whether it's going to interfere or not. Not just, not just, it's just not drug consumption per se, but relative to a particular context. So there's that issue um, uh, as well as the diag- you know, whether or not the, is the, the criteria for diagnosis. But the criteria for diagnosis have been not it, – it, at least, you know, looking at it from like World War, the, the last half of the 19th, from the 20th century on, um, there's been a pretty, you know, I don't think the definition has changed that much. Uh, or I think from, you know, the mid 20th century on, life is, you know, has been pretty industrial in the United States at least. Um, and where we see actually the biggest change is not tied so much to technology, but is tied to the 1960s. Uh, we see for people born after the night, uh, born in about 1950 to 1960 on, the um, substance dependence rates are uh, 10, 20 times higher uh, for certain age groups than they were for people born in 1940, for example. There, mm-hmm. That 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 short historical period from 1940 to 1960, uh, there was just a real change, and so that substance um, in society, such that in ways that led to much higher rates of substance dependence in the United States. And my hunch is that's true probably elsewhere in the world. And we all know about you know what happened, what was going on in the 60s. But there's been changes in society, such that it's become much more in a sense of conducive to substance dependence than it was in the past and I, it might you know part of it may be technological changes but there's clearly been social changes uh, because the period of time that we're talking about where you see the historical shift is rather small window well you know there's a couple things going on here um right. and i'm not going to argue with you completely but uh, just some perceptions <laughs> perceptions yeah. of mine uh yeah. one is are we talking about alcohol, which is what I look at mostly, oh. or are we talking about illicit drugs? Oh, we're talking about illicit drugs. Um, I don't know. I think the historical changes I'm talking about all refer to illicit drug use. And I would so, very much agree that there's a, yeah. Yeah, there's been a huge increase in consumption of illicit drugs. Right, right. When we look at alcohol, we see uh-huh. some interesting things. I mean, if you watch old reruns of Bewitched, and yeah. the way they're drinking there, and you know, uh, Darren Stevens comes home, give me a double, make it a triple, make it a quadruple, and they're just right, right. losing right. it up. And That's now, interesting, yeah, mm-hmm. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, you're right. I, my guess is that the alcohol, because alcohol has always been legal, and if anything, we're a bit more uh, less tolerant of uh, of intoxication than we were in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, and maybe even the 60s. Uh, yeah, so that would be interesting to look at the rates of alcoholism. My guess is that you, uh, um, that, that those, in contrast, I was thinking of just of a, my, my I focus much more on illicit drugs than alcohol until recently, um, and that the uh, illicit drug rates have changed radically. And that would be really interesting to look at uh, whether alcohol has shown has shown such. Big dramatic sh- uh, shifts. I, I doubt it. I think you're probably quite right about that. Yeah, I know. Nowadays, if somebody goes, if a woman goes out on a date with a guy, or vice versa, and they have two or three glasses of wine with dinner, and they, the the other one comes back and says, "I'm not dating them anymore. They're an alcoholic." 
show. Right, right, right. Well, it's just it has changed. I used to go, I remember um, I mean, um, when I was uh, just starting out in my career, um, you could put drinks on your lunch tab and your, your department would pay for it. And uh, you can't do that anymore. You are, maybe you could, but no one would do that. They would be too <laughs> embarrassed. Uh, so there's yeah there has been a shift actually in attitudes about alcohol that go in the opposite direction of illicit drug use. Um, yeah. Which is, yeah, yeah. And professors aren't smoking in their offices anymore. Oh no, I have, actually I this uh, when I was a graduate student every seminar room had an ashtray in it. And, oh uh, yeah. Now, I, yeah. Yeah. And now you couldn't you would get shot if you smoked in the that same building. <laughs> yeah, I remember when we smoked in class. I was in the last class. Where we, the professor and every, all the students tried to smoke, and we got ratted out by some of the students who went up yeah. to the office. They're smoking in class. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but it was it was expect you know it was just typical until um, you know in the seventies when I was in uh, graduate school. So, so um, there are um, so those are the major things that, I, that I've talked about. in My book is uh, this local global choice. Uh, the, the rates of remission, and that's what I've um, actually focused on a lot, and whether addiction really is. And again, I focus more on illicit drugs and um, than alcohol, uh, a chronic disorder. And alcohol, it turns out, and this is just the most recent paper that, uh, that I've done, I was very surprised to see that alcohol was so different uh, in terms of its duration, although most people do quit. Uh, eventually, but not until they're in their you know uh, late 30s, 40s or so, um, mm-hmm. do, you, do, do the rates go you know down to 50 percent um, uh, of those who, who are alcoholics in their 20s. So it, it, alcohol is different, and I think um, availability certainly is part of the story. Yeah, the numbers didn't surprise me uh, because I've. I'm familiar with the NISARC, the National Epidemiological yeah. Survey of Alcohol-Related Conditions, and yeah. that's yeah, that's the numbers you see there. It's a pretty long-term condition, right. although I think you know you can assist people to make the changes much more quickly. Right, and I think that, and I think again, it's these kind of cost-benefit analyses that will help you know making that really explicit and concrete. And also giving people, uh, you know, helping people find alternatives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, those are very essential things, I think. Yeah. And also because alcohol is so tied to people's social life. And so not drinking is, 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 isn't just that you're stopping drinking, but you're changing your social life. And mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, about half the people in that Nisark study that uh, overcame alcohol dependence about half quit, but about half moderated. Uh huh. Uh huh. So it wasn't they. They didn't have to, you know, give up alcohol altogether. Uh, and so that, and, and since alcohol is so tied with our social interactions, um, that it makes it less of a uh, less threatening and you know less of a, a dramatic shift in lifestyle. You know, I find what we do is encourage every positive change. If you want to be safer, that's mm-hmm. obviously good. If the only thing you want to do is stop drinking and driving, that's great. Uh, but if you want to reduce uh, or if you want to work at controlled drinking, if you want to quit, you know, it's you, the individual, that need to make the decision of what works best for yeah. you. Yeah. 
one thing to bring this back to the local global, one of the things, one of the characteristics of intoxication, though, is that, and this is a kind of uh, something you can do in a lab, that is when people drink, their, uh, their, their, their range of things that they're able to take into account and their, sort of, their, their scope uh, is greatly reduced. They become much more myopic. I mean, one, of the, one of the characteristics of intoxication is that you become less concerned about long-term consequences Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, under the influence of alcohol, we all become uh, much more local decision makers, and um, that often brings um, disasters that we regret afterward. But uh, but that's inherent, it seems to me, in intoxication. So that um, moderation uh, is in a way harder. I think it's harder for people to do. And... uh, uh, Ideally, there's a kinds of social rules or that they set up ahead of time that help them do that. Because once you have a few drinks, uh, your rules about how prudent you're going to be begin to uh, uh, recede. I think. So I don't I don't know if that's something that you ex- uh, see or experience, but uh, at least based on experimental research, that's exactly what you would expect uh, to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, different people. Uh... Well, in our program, different people have different plans, Uh and, uh, you know, different people have different degrees of severity. They have different social situations. Mm -hmm. Some people have social situations that are much less conducive to drinking, or Uh they have much more, many more consequences. So my plan, for instance, um, Uh is to drink one night a week, drink to intoxication safely at home. And not uh-huh. on a not on a work night, and then put it away for the rest of the week. Yes. So you're a um, yeah, and that's and, and, and in a way, um, in various forms, that's uh, uh, you know, but uh, so is you know, socially appropriate. People go out Friday night, Saturday night, and uh, it's that special night, or they have one drink in the evening. And in many uh, social situations, it's you know, it's frowned upon to have too many drinks. Uh, uh, and so there's lots of ways of uh, dealing with that, um, but but I think you uh, need to have a plan uh, ahead of time, uh, especially if it's something that's been problematic. Oh, absolutely. We yeah. encourage people to make written plans. <laughs> uh, some of our people they will make a written plan. I want to do a moderation plan, no more than three drinks in a single day, and you uh-huh. know uh, my days will be say Wednesday and Saturday. And my other days I won't drink. And that's the plan that other people make. And some people say, well, I tried these various plans, and it was really hard, and I want to quit because it's easier. Uh, right, right. I think, yeah, I think uh, that for some people it's easier. You know, I, I agree that there's a real individual difference issue here. And for some people it's easier to quit altogether, and um, other people can manage it. I think inherently it's harder to be a moderate drinker than uh, uh, to quit uh, altogether, uh, you know, because then when you're a moderate drinker, you're always facing uh, temptation, and you're always worrying, and you always are, you know, your judgment is somewhat slightly compromised at least after one or two drinks. So, uh, so it's harder to stick to. Okay, well, we're about running out of time, so I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. Okay, this has been fun, and I. Uh, I hope it's educational for your audience and for you, and I've uh, enjoyed the talk, and I've enjoyed learning about what you guys do.
Thank you. And everyone, join us next week when our guest will be Pat Taylor from Faces and Voices of Recovery. We'll see you all then. Good night.